to Red Flag Radio, the podcast that is recorded on Indigenous land, land that was stolen and never ceded, that always was, and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to this episode of our Revolutionary Socialist podcast. We're going to be talking about a campaign that's been launched in the past week in Australia, and it's called Health Before Profits, and it's in response to the political... um, plans that have been unveiled by the leaders of this country's various um, states and territories and federal government in response to um, how to, as they say, find a pathway out of COVID, which is uh, interesting. We'll talk about that. But if you want to hear a bit more about what we've said on the podcast in previous episodes about the COVID crisis, um, you'll find episodes in our history, in our um back catalogue, if you like, about um, some of the debates over lockdown in New South Wales in particular that we recorded back in July. We've talked about the COVID catastrophe in India. We've talked about the health crisis in Australian hospitals that was a health crisis right at the beginning of this pandemic. We've talked about how this pandemic can teach us a bunch of things about neoliberal priorities. And we've talked about defending the right to protest in New South Wales. So I think that's quite a good um range that really represents some of the things that this podcast does. We don't just talk about things in Australia, but we do talk about things in Australia. We talk about socialist politics in an international internationalist way because it is internationalist politics. And we talk about what you can do to change the world. So not just um, lamenting the state of things, uh, which is very easy to do at the moment, but talking about um and with people who are trying to do something about it. And that's what all of our guests on today's special panel show are trying to do um, in response to this pandemic and and the politics around it. So the campaign is called Health Before Profits, and it's a group of workers, academics, activists, students, basically anyone who wants to get involved in this can get involved and directly um, organising an opposition to the federal uh, reopening plan that has been adopted and signed off by all of the states and territories. And um, they're going to tell us about why they think this plan is reckless and unsafe and, again, shows the priorities of capitalism. So the three guests we have are uh, Sadia, Ryan and Nat. Sadia is one of the founders of the Health Before Profits campaign in Victoria and is a member of the National Tertiary Education Union. Ryan is a member of the Electrical uh, Trade Union and a construction worker, and Nat is a nurse, a member of the Nurses' Union in a public hospital in New South Wales. So we've got Victoria and New South Wales covered here. And I will just say before we get into the discussion that we're recording this in the afternoon of uh, the 12th, sorry, the 10th of October. What day is it? Sunday the 10th of October. And as always in the changing uh, pace of this pandemic, um, things might be different when you listen so that's my caveat. Let's go straight away to Sadia. Um, why did you first get involved in this campaign? Can you kind of tell us what your involvement is and what really essentially the campaign is all about? 
Yeah, sure. Thanks, Roz. Um, well, I guess for me, uh, I'm, I'm a socialist. I've been a socialist for about 10 years. I'm also a unionist. And, you know, the slogan, health before profit, for, I guess if you are a socialist, that's that's a common sense. Just like we, you know, we're for health before profits. We're for education before profit. We're for the environment before profit. You know, as the whole system is, is, is organised around a logic of profit making. And for us, it's sort of a common sense to reject that. But I think what we've seen with the pandemic is that that question of health versus profits has been politicised. Um, you know, the question of healthcare and who is responsible for healthcare has become a peak political question. So whereas previously it was just kind of accepted that, um, you know, neoliberal healthcare just was something that was, you know, sort of your own responsibility, um, you know, you should look after your health, you should go private, get private healthcare or whatever, what we've seen with the pandemic is it's about what is the government doing? Are they protecting us? Are they willing to shut down the economy? Are they willing to sacrifice our profits um, for the sake of public health? Um, so I think that's been a real uh, opportunity um, to, to launch this campaign, particularly at uh, you know at the point where we've seen in Australia an, an abandonment um, of, of COVID zero and acceptance and acceptance that that's going to mean um, mass deaths. In terms of what we're about, I guess at different points we've campaigned about different issues. So during the lockdowns, it was about closing non-essential businesses. It was about paying people to stay home. It was about massively increasing uh, welfare. Um, you know, it was about paying our essential workers properly. We hear nonstop about how essential our essential workers are, you know, supermarket workers, warehouse workers. Um, you know, we think they, they should be paid properly um, and increasingly, this is about, and our campaign is about bringing that battle, health before profits, into our workplaces to make our workplaces safe. And specifically, we think that businesses should use their profits um, to make workplaces safe. So that's, uh, you know, questions of air filtration, um, HEPA filters, um, monitoring air quality, masks, uh, vaccine, you know, uh, mandatory vaccination, um, all of those kind of things. Um, yeah, and I mean, Nat will talk more about this, but I think most fundamentally it's about our healthcare system. Uh, you know, we should be pouring billions of dollars into our healthcare system, um, you know, and that we, we've seen throughout this pandemic that that, that that money is there. There's no reason why we shouldn't be expanding our hospitals, pay, you know, increasing the pay for our nurses. Um, here in Victoria, we know that the healthcare workers that staffed the pandemic last time around, last year, a lot of those people are refusing to go back because they're overworked, they're exhausted. It's a totally uh, untenable situation. And, um, you know, just a few weeks ago, uh, people people might have seen that, that $90 billion that was spent on the AUKUS submarine deal that's $90 billion is $10 billion more um, than what is federally spent on public health. So there is money there. We think that money should go towards healthcare. It should go towards totally uh, refurbishing our workplaces to make them uh, safe. Um, and, you know, the, that fundamental message is that, um, you know, the, the, the reopening in the current conditions um, is, is unsafe. Yeah. And if you want to... Um hear more about the money that's available, people can listen to the previous episode of Red Flag Radio where we talk about the massive spike in profits that um, some of the richest people in Australia have um, enjoyed during the pandemic. So, yeah, it, I mean, it's staggering really that to me one of the things that's most staggering in a way is that it's people like us or you and us um, that are having to campaign 
around this stuff that because it does just seem so basic like the treatment of healthcare workers the the lack of demands even from some of the union um, leaderships around things like pandemic pay um safety at work and so on like not um not having any opposition really to the to the abandonment of covid zero as you say this idea that when we're, we're never going to eliminate covid anymore so we've just got to learn to live with it and it's sort of uh, impossible even though that goes against a whole heap of scientific and medical evidence so what what are the main differences between your campaign Sadia or this campaign health before profits and the kind of consensus in mainstream politics and why do you think that consensus seems to be so rigid at this point yeah, well, I think, you know, that even just this language of health before profits is, is something that's been really lacking um, from the mainstream discourse. You know, if you watch the ABC, which a lot of us does, you'd think that the main question um, of this pandemic um, is business, really, and small business owners, um, you know, uh, how they're doing it tough, um, how they've lost money, how they've lost lost profits and how hard the lockdown is um, on them. You wouldn't think it's the, about the fact the overflowing uh uh, intensive care units. You wouldn't think it's about our overworked healthcare staff. You wouldn't think it's about the fact that people are dying every single day. Um, so, you know, I think introducing that, uh, I guess, framework of health before profits is really important. And I think in terms of what is the consensus, I mean, this has been the case for a while now. It's They call it living with the virus, which just sounds really innocuous. It's, it, you know, it's just, it just sounds like, oh, it's just a different way of, of doing regular life. Um, when really we know what what living with the virus uh, looks like. It's, this is nothing new. We've seen it all around the world. This is a virus that has killed 18 um, million people. Um, and we know that living with the virus um, means, means basically uh, getting sick um, and potentially um, dying from the virus. So, um, you know, I think to push back against this kind of um, uh, attempt to for us to accept COVID, living with COVID as a new normal and all the things that that means for our health. Um, I think, yeah, that's sort of part of our messaging. Yeah. And what's the response been so far then? Has has this been, um, you know, taken up by many people? What kind of impact do you think the campaign is having or could have? Like why should people pay attention to this in your opinion? Yeah, well, that's uh, that's a really good question. I think one of the reasons to pay attention to this is, you know, here in Victoria, we had almost 2,000 cases yesterday. We had over 1,900. Today we had over 1,800 um, cases, and that is just as schools are going back. Um, so one of the big questions we're talking about at the moment is the reopening of schools. Um, we have tens of thousands of Year 12s that started uh, last week, and every week from last week um, there is tens of thousands of students um, returning to school the vaccination rate among school students is actually uh, under 50%. Um, and among primary school students, we know that pretty much none of them um, are vaccinated. Many teachers are also waiting for their second vaccine um, and they're being forced back to work. And then um, we also have construction uh, going back. So we've had the kind of forums that we've had. Um, we've managed to get um, hundreds of people along uh, and been lucky to host um, some of the uh, doctors from the Osage um, Health Group, just a group of epidemiologists and doctors that have done some of the best modelling around COVID. Um, and we've managed to get trade unionists, particularly um, teachers, nurses, healthcare professionals, and we're always looking for more of those people 
um, to get involved um, in the campaign. And I guess I think, especially here in Victoria, it's particularly urgent as the cases that we're seeing at the moment, they are actually exceeding the expectations um, of, of, of the Burnett modelling um, and, and it's quite concerning in terms of what that could be like um, over the next couple of weeks, particularly as, you know, the the mantra now is opening up at 70%, at 80% vaccination and we know, um, even though it's not talked about a lot anymore, we know that that is actually 56% um, of the adult population because it's only counting um, over 18-year-olds. Um, and we also know that 70%, 80% across the total population, that leaves behind um, vulnerable groups, it leaves behind Indigenous communities, it leaves behind basically all the people where you would want to get the vaccination rate to close to 95% um, before reopening. Yeah, people with disabilities in, in particular mm, being yeah. left behind since the beginning really. Mm. Yeah, it's staggering. The, the latest news today was... Um, that thousands of people are going to be able to go to the Melbourne Cup. Dan Andrews mm. is pretty determined that that is going to happen, which is only a few weeks away, um, and the numbers are still going up of daily case rates and hospitals and, um, you know, the stories about ambulances uh, not turning up um, for people who call them mm. are increasing all, all the time. So, yeah, if people are listening to this and they're sh- shocked still by the government's response or they – uh, you know, they know people who are in particular positions that could um, help with the campaign if they're if they're um, involved in the politics of health or frontline workers who could share stories with the campaign to help us get some of the messages across. Then we've got a bunch of links in the notes for the show that you can follow up and you can get in touch with Sadia or other conveners of the campaign. I want to move on to talk to Nat, who is on those front lines, who is a nurse um, in a public hospital. And this is a big question, but just to give us a flavour of your experience during the pandemic, like what is it actually like, Nat? Uh, Yeah, well, I mean, that is really a pretty big question. over the last like 18 months. Um, but I th- the first thing actually, just as a disclaimer, I just wanted to say that um, what I'm gonna be talking about are my own views and experiences and do not like um, reflect those of uh, New South Wales Health. But um, importantly, I think the thing to say about nursing in the pandemic is that in some ways it's been very similar to nursing not in the pandemic, but in the worst possible ways. So in terms of things about like ha- not having enough beds, not having enough staff, that stuff is all basically the same, except that it's now compounded because you now have like extra isolation requirements for people with COVID. And obviously if staff themselves are exposed, then you have those staff needing to go into isolation. So the staff who are not in isolation are now taking on a greater workload and I was talking to a colleague about this just a couple of nights ago. It's not like any of the existing work has gone away mm. now that we have all these COVID considerations. It's really just added on top of those things. And I think it's like bef- right before this particular wave of the pandemic, um, my union, the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association, had um, a ratios campaign going on that really is just one phase of this ratios campaign, which has been going on for like long before I was a nurse, really like years and years. 
but there have been like strikes and stuff about the fact that there is not enough staff. And so now you're talking about we have even less staff than we do in normal times. So that just becomes more and more of an issue. So there's that side of it. But then there's also these like other things about like not knowing when the pandemic is going to be at its worst in the hospital system, not knowing are we going to have enough PPE because that situation sort of shifts all the time. And like, do we have enough of the isolation rooms to isolate the increasing numbers of people we're going to have into the hospital? And really all that uncertainty, I think, takes a real massive like emotional um, toll on just staff trying to work in the hospital and trying to get all of the rest of their like work done, caring for people. Um, and that's kind of been a feature actually for the last 18 months, sort of obviously in like troughs and peaks and stuff, but it has been really a feature of not knowing exactly when things are really just going to like cave in around you. Mm. And then of course, you've got to couple that with the like concern that we always have for our vulnerable, vulnerable patients about like, you know, um, getting opportunistic infections and that sort of thing. But then obviously COVID is particularly opportunistic. Um, and so that's sort of doubled that concern. And then we're also having to do more like emotional support for patients and stuff like that, because obviously that was always a part of our role. But at the moment, at least in New South Wales, there's basically no visitors in the hospital system unless someone's like imminently dying. And even then it's like, you know, case by case basis. So that means that a lot of our sort of time is now tied up with like updating, updating people's families, but also like, you know, just checking in with people emotionally in ways that we probably didn't have to do on that level before this sort of wave of the pandemic. And yeah, like I said before, it's just sort of added to rather than replaced any existing work we already had. Yeah. I hadn't actually thought of that in terms of yeah, visitors not being able to take on the emotional mm-hmm. um, response to to their friends and family and loved ones and so on. So if the nurse is the only person they can talk to, they're going to want to tell you their life stories and their final kind of. Well, yeah, exactly. And it's kind of like obviously nurses go into it because they want to, you know, care for people. So they do want to provide that emotional support. But it's also like, do you actually have the resources, even just in terms of the amount of people you have, to be able to do that? Yeah, to spend, and you know that they need you mm. to spend time listening to them, but you've got to move on to the next patient because you've got a certain amount of things to get done, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, and the uncertainty as well, I think, the thing in terms of, you know, sometimes there is the PPE, but there's been times where there hasn't been the PPE, that you're worried about your own health in a way that you mm. hadn't had to before. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So I guess one of the things that people might be thinking in terms of hospitals and public health care is that in a campaign that's about health before profits, you know, a heap of people work for organisations that quite obviously, you know, reap massive profits that could put those profits back into protecting their workers better. You know, mm. construction would be an obvious one where these um builders and developers make millions of profits they could look after the workers better but in public hospitals what are the profit implications in public health like how does that fit with this campaign yeah so I think there's like sort of broader things where if you like live in a society where things are like focused on profit then the like reopening of businesses obviously has an impact on the hospital system when COVID cases go way up 
But I think even just within the public healthcare system, the public healthcare system gets money from like private health funds and that sort of thing. But the bulk of their money comes from like, you know, uh, Medicare and that sort of thing. But basically like the way I see it is in terms of like any public money that's sort of allocated to healthcare, allocated to a specific hospital or just allocated to healthcare in general that actually doesn't get spent is money that the hospital, but really more broadly, the governments at the state and federal level, they get to keep. So in profits in a public health system really looks like hospital budgets being run like as tightly as possible with these very, very thin margins. And really over the last few decades, we've seen like the government tighten and tighten those budgets. And that any hospital that sort of goes outside of those margins is really having to justify why they have high costs rather than accepting that maybe sometimes healthcare costs more than you think it will um, if you want to actually keep people, you know, healthy and alive. And so then that flows on to stuff about like, you know, bed pressure. So that's like not having enough beds if there's a sudden surge in patients that you didn't expect and, you know, understaffing and also obviously not paying staff as much as they really should be. So it's all those sorts of things about like, where can you cut the fat out of the system so that that money is actually really just kept on a governmental level? Mm. And so I think that like when a pandemic happens, then you've already cut all the fat out of the system, which you could use in a pandemic to like actually hire more staff, get the extra resources you really need in terms of like having more PPE, having more ventilators, all those sorts of things. That fat's already gone. So it's like, it's not, there's no, nothing to be dipped into. And so I think that like, so that's why it's so infuriating, infuriating to me when I see stuff like Scott Morrison a few days ago um, said that the hospitals and, you know, the states in general had 18 months to prepare for this pandemic. I think that's, that's true in the really the very strictest sense of that idea. But that would really, there have been required to have been this like influx of cash over the last 18 months to make all of those like preparations happen. And that just really hasn't happened. And so I think it's just crazy to say that we've been able to prepare in this time. Yeah. It's like saying you should have been able to prepare for the casualties in a war situation, except we're not giving you anything to do to do that with. Like yeah, you should exactly. use what you already have, but there's going to be a heap of casualties coming on. So you can sort of psychologically prepare maybe, but actually not practically, materially have any mm. extra help to do it on top of the exhaustion and everything that people have already gone through to get to this point. Yeah. So they've sent out, it seems to me, a whole bunch of kind of stooge spokespeople. I mean, they're official people. <laughs> they have some positions in the healthcare system. But bearing in mind that a bunch of people who manage healthcare are basically just business managers who are not really healthcare workers in the sense that they've never done medical kind of caring work they may have worked in healthcare but they're bureaucrats essentially those people come out and say the hospital system is totally ready we can open up we can do this roadmap that scott morrison mm. has said and that this campaign is criticizing when you hear those people say the hospitals are ready how does that make you feel i know you kind of said that but you know yeah yeah I do think it really like yeah it kind of it definitely ties into the thing that I was sort of starting to get into but I think that like you can say that like so when I looked at some of the modeling you can say that like okay physically do we have the physical space to house a mass influx 
of COVID patients. And that may or may not be true on a like day-to-day basis because like hospital bed turnover is pretty rapid. So that kind of like, but even assuming that that does exist, I think that the thing that like these politicians ought to gloss over is that um, do you have the actual resources within the hospital and the like staff to care for those patients? And particularly when it comes to staff, it's not as simple as like, you need 200 nurses, you need 50 doctors and so on and so forth. Do you have 200 nurses? Do you have 50 doctors? But also, are all of those medical professionals trained in ICU care, trained in respiratory care? Like, even if we have enough ventilators, and that's often has been a big if, but assuming that we do have enough ventilators, for instance, learning to care for someone on a ventilator is not something you can learn overnight. And so then it raises the question, is there enough time to hire, train, or retrain staff if you don't have enough staff to meet that need. And I think we have to say with the pace of the pandemic in New South Wales and now Victoria, we actually don't necessarily have that time. Mm. And so I think, and even the government in some of their more honest moments have said things like the hospitals are short staffed, you know, they're always short staffed, the staff are used to it sort of thing. And it's kind of as if that's something we should just be okay with like even in normal times, let alone in a pandemic. And I just think that that's not something that we should ever accept, that hospitals are run bare bone with minimal staff, minimal resources. I don't think we should accept that in normal times. We definitely shouldn't accept it in a pandemic. And we shouldn't accept it as healthcare workers, but we also shouldn't just accept it as people who think they might need the public healthcare system like ever in their lives, which is basically all of us. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I remember at the beginning... Uh, well, last year in the UK when the numbers were shooting up and um, there was a lot of pressure to put more funding into the NHS and Boris Johnson announced that they'd opened up a new um, special sort of field hospital and it was a certain number of beds, I don't know, 200 beds, let's say. And then everyone started pointing out that there was literally no staff for the beds, so it was kind of just like this... Yeah airline hangar with beds in with no one who could ever go into those beds because there were no staff no nurses to go with them so they were just literally pieces of metal in a space it's like yeah this is exactly ridiculous um thank you nat for sharing that with us thanks russ Let's talk to a construction worker, which may have not been where we thought we'd end up um, in talking about the pandemic. But in the last couple of weeks particularly, there's been a lot of discussion around um, construction and opening up construction, closing construction, uh, vaccinations. So we thought it would be good to talk to a real construction worker, and Ryan is one of those. Um the focus has been about this question of vaccinations and I just wanted to start by asking, like, do you think that is the main concern in construction, whether people are for or against vaccinations or not? Um, well, I think it's obviously something that was made clear a couple of weeks ago with the mass far-right rallies that included a lot of construction workers through the heart of Melbourne. Um that we can't take that for granted. Um, and it is an important, you know, the majority of construction workers are uh, definitely going to do the right thing, already have done the right thing. Um, you know, 
will get vaccinated willingly, understand, you know, something about it being an important form of social solidarity and a way to protect themselves and their families and their workmates and so on. Uh, uh, but there is also quite a lot of confusion in the construction industry um, as well. And I think probably in society more broadly. And, uh, you know, the, within that confusion and within that um, uh, not fully understanding how serious and how dangerous the virus is, um, I think there is a more sort of a hard right kernel of anti-vaxxers. And I think that they've been able to make a little bit of, hey, um, in this sort of political environment. So that's something that needs to be fought and challenged. So I do think it is important that we try to wage the argument um, in construction, but more broadly, that it's important for people to get vaccinated, that it's about social solidarity, uh, and it's about protecting um you know, our sisters and brothers in the healthcare industry who are going to be absolutely slammed um, as the numbers from the virus continue to increase. Uh, but having said that, like, yeah, I think that the whole thing, you know, the break rooms thing, for example, the fact that the virus can still spread through the break rooms, even if people are uh, vaccinated, the fact that construction workers actually travel on average far more than most other workers, like the average construction worker travels something like 20 kilometers uh, to work and back each day compared to, you know, the average travel time of a lot less for, for other workers in hospitality and so on. That's, that's 20 kilometers of petrol stations, fast food, drive through places, Bunnings, uh, whatever, 20 kilometers of, uh, stops and travel and movement uh, for 300,000 workers in Victoria every single day um, that is just only going to increase the ability of the virus to spread. So really, even aside from vaccinations, the vast bulk of this industry is completely non-essential. The workers building, you know, the multitude of identical, you know, freaking apartment buildings throughout the north of Melbourne or building some, you know, some new bank's office building in the CB. Like that stuff can wait. Um, it can wait till after we don't have a deadly pandemic ramp rampaging through society. Um, and that those workers um, should be stood down and should uh, stay at home on full wages. Um, and I think the full wages thing is quite important because one of the problems with the, cons you know, the way that this has been talked about um, is that, you know, the fact that the construction industry, when it does get shut down, or as it is right now, limited to 25% uh, capacity on uh, commercial construction sites, those construction workers are then sent home and put on the job, or on the, sorry, not job, it used to be JobKeeper, now there's the COVID disaster payment. Uh, it's $750 a week, which for a hospitality worker or somebody in retail or whatever, you know, that might be a little bit closer to their wage, but for construction workers, that's half or less than their usual wage, you know, with families and, and mortgages and so on. So people need, far more needs to be spent on uh, supporting workers who are stood down and far more effort needs to go into actually standing down non-essential workers during an outbreak to try to slow down the spread of this thing. Um, and that stuff needs to happen, in my view, just regardless of how many people are vaccinated. Those sorts of policies depend on how... Uh, how much the virus is spreading, how many cases there are, what are the, uh, you know, what are the um, the hospitals and the ICUs look like, et cetera. That's really what the, those decisions need to be based on, not just how many people are vaccinated. Yeah. 
And I think that's one of the kind of slogans of the Health Before Profits campaigns campaign is about having a vaccines plus strategy and the plus part is very important. So, of course, there should be um, vaccinations at an extremely high level, much higher than 70 or 80%, in fact, 90% plus of all people, including children from birth. Um but also on top of the vaccination to do things like not having people um, that just are working in risky situations to make somebody money and to not do any other service to society shouldn't be doing those things and the people who've already made millions off their work should be using that money to, to pay them during this period. So when you talk to the people around you, I mean, it's true to say that construction sites have been quite a um, – major site of transmission of the virus. Are people concerned? Are they just thinking, you know, I hope it doesn't happen to me? Are there people in construction who would support some of the broader aims of this campaign, do you think? Yeah, well, I mean, I think when you wait, when you talk about things in these terms of health, public health before profits, um, you know, I think it's hard for a lot of workers to really disagree with that. Um, but I think that the real problem is that for the last two years, um, from you know big business to mainstream media to the ABC is horrible at this, uh, you know, to pretty much every level of government, and even from our own union leadership, all that we've heard is that construction is the engine of the economy. It has to, we have to get it going. Almost, it doesn't matter how many cases there are. We need to get construction going. It's the heart of the economy and so on. Um, and I think that, you know, we're sort of politically paying the price for that a bit now. Um, and those rallies last year were an extreme symptom uh, or an extreme version of that sort of argument that uh, the needs of the construction industry, i.e. the needs of the construction bosses, um, that our own sectional needs as an industry, the economic, that, you know, profitability and economics in general all those things take priority over public health. Um, you know, the fact that that's the sort of arguments that we've been subjected to for the last two years. And the only way you can't, you can't think that, or you can't accept those sorts of views without downplaying how serious the virus is. By definition, uh, to put uh, the profits of an industry ahead of public health, you have to basically say that public health isn't actually that much in jeopardy. And if, if, and so that, you know, that means that people can think, you know, have all sorts of ideas about the virus being overblown and that kind of stuff. Um, and if the virus is overblown, then what's, why are we getting vaccinated again? It just seems, you know, invasive and, and unnecessary. So that is definitely not the majority uh, who think that, but there is a significant minority of people who have accepted the ideas that uh, the virus is a little bit of, be of a beat up and that the vaccine is, is, you know, a bit unnecessary because of that. And obviously those protesters were again on the, the far right extreme of that. And most of the people that I know, you know, thought that they were a bunch of fuckwits, to be honest, that they wouldn't have anything to do with them. But in general, there is quite a bit of confusion and mixed messenger, mixed messaging, and not just from Sky News and Andrew Bolt, you know, the World Health Organization has been putting out complete mixed messaging. Um, you know, the Andrews government, on the one hand, says this virus is extremely dangerous. Everybody should get vaccinated. Everybody should, 
you know, adhere to, uh, to stay at home orders and to the lockdowns and whatever. On the other hand, uh, keeps arguing that we're going to figure out a way to live with the virus. As Sadia said, that it's something that we can just, um, you know, figure out how to, uh, get business going as usual and just put up with it. It's just a part of our lives. Well, though the, that inconsistency in the fact that there's been so much contradictory stuff put out there and so little determination uh, to take this virus seriously. Well, that flows through. And I think that that means that there is quite a lot of contradictory uh, views about the virus between people, but also within people and what, you know, individuals think, you know, on the one hand, they're like, yeah, it's really serious and scary. And on the other hand, they're like, you know, why can't we just be able to, allowed to go to pubs to travel or, or when's the industry going to get back going again? Mm-hmm. And have you found, and just we'll, finish on this before coming back to Sadia, but have you found people will shift at all when they know you're involved in a broader campaign like this? Have you got other construction workers or workers from other industries involved in this campaign? Like, Because it can seem like that's a pretty big hurdle for us to, mm. to get over, but you think it's possible to do that, right? Yeah. Uh, like the again it's it's kind of it sounds cliche but class politics is central you know in my experience it's really the only thing that can can cut through um you know all sorts of backwards ideas not just about about covid but about you know racism or sexism or homophobia um arguing that this is uh this is about solidarity with you know your workmates with the friends and families of your workmates um this is about solidarity with with um, workers in healthcare, this is about general social solidarity. All that kind of stuff is is absolutely vital. And then you know, having and talking about well, what who's in whose interests are we being made to go to work every day? It's not for our own health and safety. It's not for the betterment of humanity. Or whatever we're just building some you know apartment building for uh, an investor to be able to park their cash in uh, and hopefully get a profitable return. Like, what does this got to do with any of the things that we actually care about um, and sort of argue that this is, we're being made to go to work today, not in our own interest, but in the interest of the rich and powerful. I think those arguments are really the only thing um, that can really cut through uh, around a, an issue that's been as sort of distorted and uh, and whatever is, is the COVID uh, issue to do with coronavirus has been. Yeah. Thank you, Ryan. Um- so, Sadia, just to finish then, what um, what can people do to get involved? What kind of things is the campaign going to be doing? I know we're still um, in lockdown or we'll want to be campaigning in very safe ways at this point. So what do you, what's coming up? What can people do? Yeah, well, because we're still in lockdown, I think that just means we just need more people. Um, you know, the way we're getting our messaging out at the moment, um, it's through social media, it's through um, postering where we can, but we, we really just need um, more people to get our, our message out there. Um, so I encourage people to jump on Facebook. Um, we've got a Health Before Profits um, Facebook page, and there's there's one in pretty much every city um, in Australia now, so wherever you're listening from, you can jump on there now. 
Um, other th- if you get involved in our campaign as well, we're doing a lot in our individual workplaces. So we have a little caucus of teachers that's doing that's uh, campaigning against the reopening of schools. Um, we have university workers, we have healthcare workers, we have construction workers. So whatever industry you're in, um, whether it's about uh, you know fighting to, to make our workplaces safe or, or, or stopping the return to work, um, I know at my work at a university it is about uh, not actually returning to campus until it's safe. Um, Health Before Profits is really the campaign to get involved in, to, to figure out strategies and to workshop um, how, how, to, how to push back. Um, just our next forum that we've got coming up um, is going to be on the question of the, the reckless reopening of schools. Um, and we're going to be featuring a, a teacher and a unionist and a high school student, um, you know, as hundreds of that. We're looking at getting, I think it's 400,000 students are going to be coming back to school in the next couple of weeks, way before we even get to 70, 80, um, let alone 90 percent vaccination. Um, and so uh, that forum is going to be happening on the 23rd of October. Um, which is going to be a Saturday. So if people jump on the Facebook uh, page, you can find that event um, and stay in touch with the campaign. Yep. Thanks, Sadia. And we'll put all the links to those in the notes for this episode. And I really appreciate all of your um, time. I know you're all extremely busy campaigning, working, doing all the other things in your lives, being active socialists. So um, thanks for being with us on Red Flag Radio. Thanks, guys. Thanks, thanks. so much, Rod. And thanks, Liam, for doing all the the fiddly bits. <laughs> You're listening to Red Flag Radio. We have a world to win. <laughs>